Good morning, good afternoon, good day, good evening, good night, good people, wherever you are in the world. This is another episode of Music and We. I am Jamila, and today we have a special guest. I love having these special guests. Today we have Nick. Nick is also called Metal Lawyer. I'm really excited to talk about that. <laughs> Metal Lawyer, Nick the Metal Lawyer. We met through a particular community. It is a podcast, uh, one of my favorites in relation to music. It's called Metal Up Your Podcast. And I really hope at some point we get either Clint or Ethan or both of them on this show Please, please, please. <laughs> but we did meet through the Metal Up Your Podcast community. And the thing I enjoy about that community is that there's a range of people with a range of experiences. But the bulk of the community is there because of a love for Metallica. I just really love when you had the conversation, hey, we can come and talk a little bit about disability because we both have different experiences with that. But you're also a metalhead, so I want to discuss that with you as well. Nick hails from North Dakota in the U.S. and was born with cerebral palsy. Again, I am so excited to have this conversation. Welcome, Nick, metal lawyer. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> so uh, there's a range of questions I want to ask you. There's so much going on. In terms of your experience with cerebral palsy, what do you define as cerebral palsy for folks who are not aware? What I, how I like to explain it to people is cerebral palsy at its core is really a brain injury. It is a injury to the portion of your brain that's responsible for motor function. It disrupts the communication between your nerves and your muscles. And so that's where all the physical symptoms come from. But the reason I like to explain that to people is because cerebral palsy is very unique in that how it presents is entirely dependent on how bad the damage is. So you can have something from a range of a guy that's just uncoordinated, can't do things like dribble a basketball, stuff like that, all the way to someone who is completely bedridden and unable to speak. Even myself, I don't know if you know this, Jamila, I'm a twin, so I have a twin brother. And he also has cerebral palsy, but his is significantly worse. So just in between those two births, you have a range of, I have certain difficulties, certain complications, whereas my brother lives in a group home, he's in a wheelchair, he has very little control over any of his extremities, so on and so forth. And in fact, if you were to, you uh, uh, an adult could actually develop cerebral palsy if, say, they were to like fall off a ladder or something and just land in just a certain way that they would damage that part of their brain. That's usually how I define it because it helps people understand that this is a whole range of things. It has no effect on an individual's cognitive abilities or anything like that. It's, it's a break in the network, so to speak. That's fascinating. I am a twin as well, so I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's <laughs> but- interesting. As a result of the accident, I had, I also struggle, not wholly, but I struggle with things like multitasking, something I didn't have a problem with before, just grasping certain concepts as fast as I used to. Those are things that 
uh, that developed for me as a result of the accident, but you being born with cerebral palsy, what were some of the things they detected either through an ultrasound or did those things get discovered after you were born? So we were significantly premature 12 weeks. When my brother and I were born in 1990, we were so small and babies of our size were so uncommon that my mother used to dress us in Cabbage Patch kids' clothes. Like she would take the clothes off the dolls and that's what we would wear. Um, But I think because we were born so early, they were just on the lookout for complications. And then, I mean, like, especially Alex. I mean, you could look at an infant picture of him and know, like, just based on how he's holding his hands and things like that, something is up. I don't exactly know all the ins and outs of what got determined where, but I, I think it was pretty apparent as soon as we were out in the world that not everything was all together. I like that you bring up the experiences, Jamila, because the reason I reached out to you and the reason I had this idea is because I was listening to your most recent episode in which you and your co-host were discussing the fantastic and wonderful 72 season. And you spent a significant portion of that discussing your experiences. And I was I was just struck by what it would be like to have a quote unquote normal experience and then have that transition. Because for me, that experience was totally different. You mm-hmm. know, I, I've had people ask me like, oh, would you change it if you could? The first time anybody ever asked me that, I really thought about it. And I thought, you know, no, because I like who I am. And I am who I am largely because of that. For example, my Metallica fandom is a direct consequence of me having cerebral palsy. Me playing guitar, me reading as voraciously as I do, me loving art. And, you know, my personality was shaped by my limitation. And so I wouldn't change that. But in your situation... That's an entirely different question. For sure. And I think my relationship with Metallica when I wasn't an amputee versus now, I think now it's similar to yours. And me playing music is particularly inspired by that. And at this point in my life, and I say this probably, I don't know how often I say it, but Lars Ulrich is my greatest musical inspiration at this point in my life being an amputee and just honoring the limitations you have and not particularly beating yourself up over it. I do in a way still beat myself up over it because this is an ableist world. So it's like, well, I'm not good enough or whatever it is, the things that I say in my head. But I think looking at Metallica's journey and them welcoming their mistakes and not particularly beating themselves up over it at this point in their lives is really inspiring to me. I don't know about you, but it really helps me in the journey as a person playing music and just even listening to their music. Yeah, I think for me, Metallica Metallica was just, it was a thing to grab onto. When I was growing up, I grew up in a very, very small town. Like I graduated from high school with, I want to say like 58 kids, 45 of those kids. I started kindergarten my whole life was in a group of, say, 3,000 people. 
being in rural North Dakota, we had a lot of the farm boys. We had a lot of the hunting types. We had the athletes and stuff like that. And around the time I was in seventh or eighth grade, I want to say, skateboarding had really started to come back. That's when, you know, Tony Hawk, the games hit. and mm-hmm. Everybody was rocking the Etnies and the Hurley shirts and all that <laughs> stuff. And I like I like skateboarding. I love those games. I still like watching skate videos. I because it's awesome, but I cannot stand on a skateboard. Yeah. One of one of my primary limitations is my balance is severely affected. So I have never ridden a bicycle. I cannot stand on a skateboard, you know, that sort of stuff. You know, so when everybody else was doing that whole thing, I started doing that whole thing too. And it just it never felt a hundred percent. And I always liked music. I always grew up listening to rock music. My first memory I ever have with my father is driving in a beat up Oldsmobile listening to Van Halen. You know, I remember watching him play guitar when I was three years old. He is a big hair metal guy. Bon Jovi is his favorite band in the whole world. We all tease him because he secretly wants to be John Bon Jovi. (laughs) And then my mom is kind of like a top 40 person you know but sort of all over the place and when she was in high school she was the girl that would like date the kind of bad guys like the the metalheads and the guys that had the fast cars and stuff so she also kind of liked you know metallica and anthrax and some of that stuff and so when i was in about well seventh or eighth grade about that time she got me an mp3 player for my Chris, for my birthday or christmas or something and it was when mp3 players were real fresh you could put, you could fit like 40 songs on it all the shit was misspelled on the screen you know yes and i didn't know how to run this thing so i asked my mom to fill it up and thanks to napster my mom put roughly a dozen metallic songs on the mp3 player and i had heard metallica obviously on the radio like everyone else but at the time i was like all about cinderella and raft and stuff it went in one ear and out the other at the time well when i got that mp3 player it was around the same time that i started going to like daily physical therapy at the local clinic and it was about a block and a half from the school two blocks maybe and so I would walk there and then walk back in the middle of my school day. I had the MP3 player. I remember the first song I put on was Sad But True. And it came through the headphones and just hit that first big diamond. I was immediately just, this, this is the greatest thing I have ever heard. And I was just instantly obsessed. Mm-hmm. And then I... Like most parents in the 80s and 90s, my parents had a kick-ass CD collection. And I, of course, went through the collection and just decided, hey, this is mine now. And I went through and I grabbed all my mom's Metallica CDs. She had had Justice and both loads and Garage at the time. I don't think St. Anger was out yet. And uh, all day, every day, for months. The first time I got a chance to go out of town with a buddy, I grabbed Master of Puppets. 
Then the next time I went out of town after that, I conned my dad to get me ride the light. And I talked my mom into getting me kill them all. And for an untold amount of time, that was all I listened to. And in that moment, I went from not really knowing who I was, just being kind of a guy, to I became the music guy. I became the Metallica guy. I started playing guitar. Every day was a different band shirt. Started growing my hair out, doing the whole thing. So for me, Metallica is how I figured out who I was. I wanted to ask you, in relation to your work as a lawyer, how metal shapes that work. But I want to get into what type of lawyer you are, you are because there's defense, there's prosecution, there's entertainment lawyers, there's all kinds of things. What field do you work in? Uh, mostly what I do now is family related, which is interesting because I always swore I would never do that. My parents got divorced when I was like 14. It was a disaster that I could talk about for hours, but I always said, I'm never doing that. I got out of law school, took the bar, passed the bar, and I got a job at a law firm, and I worked there for maybe six weeks. I hated it. I hated, hated, hated it. I decided, all right, I'll go get a second job, and I'm just going to grind, and I'm just going to do it myself. Because you go to a firm, it's like every other job ever. It sucks. I figured out for every $30 an hour or whatever it was, I was getting paid. They were getting six times as much. I was getting screwed. So I just, for three years, I worked two jobs and just gathered clients, built word of mouth, did the whole thing. And in that process, I figured out that I was actually pretty good at family law. Hmm. And I figured out I hated criminal defense. Mm. So I mostly do family-related litigation. As far as how music affects me, if you go to my website right now, enrollerlaw.com, there is a video of me, you know, promotional thing that I made. In that video... I'm wearing a Lamb of God shirt. <laughs> I'm not, I mean, yeah, in part of the video, I'm in a suit, but I'm not wearing a polo shirt and slacks. And I go to the clerk's office in my leather jacket. Metal has, metal and music in general, and my identity has always pushed me to do the best I can. And I'm never going to sacrifice who I am. I always say, being a lawyer is what I do, it's not who I am. Mm. So because of that, and a lot of this has to do with some things my father taught me as well. If a client calls me and wants to meet, I don't tell them, hey, come to my office, check out my thick bookshelf and my nice desk. Would you like some overpriced small water? I go to their house. I sit in their kitchen. I don't turn my cell phone off. If somebody wants to call me at 1030 at night, they can call me at 1030 at night. If I'm busy, I won't answer. So that whole identity that I've built, I think, has just helped me to stay grounded and to focus on using my job to help people. Nobody calls a lawyer because they want to spend 
dollars $300, $400 an hour. They call a lawyer because they need help. So that's what I'm going to do. Well, the funny thing is you mentioning that because lawyers are seen as being slimy and they just look at clients' as numbers and you talking about going to people's houses and your phone being open and available. Uh, what are some other things that you can think of or that you do that dispel the perception of lawyers just being about dollars, about being inhumane? Well, I'll tell you, I'm not going to commit to this forever, but as of now, and in the last five years of my practice, I do not charge a client to call me at all. I do not charge a client to email me at all. Unless you, I've told clients, you know, if it gets to a point where all of a sudden I'm spending six hours on the phone with you a week, you know, then we have to have a conversation. But if you need to call and talk to me for 10 minutes, and especially doing family law, I get calls from clients where they're just, I don't know if I'm doing everything right. I'm scared. What if they're doing this? What if they're doing that? Blah, blah. And it's just a venting session. And sometimes that'll go on for an hour. I charge them nothing for that. Yeah. And that is extremely uncommon. I can tell you right now, any lawyer that you call that has a nice sign out front, a couple guys in the office, the whole thing, you call them, you talk to them for 30 seconds, or you talk to them for five minutes, you're getting charged for five minutes every time. Every time they send an email, it doesn't matter if that email has four words in it or 50, you are getting charged for five minutes. Wow. And so I just don't do that. And so I had to, you know, and even like last year, I had to kind of make a decision because I got a lucky break on a case and I got a nice, pretty nice fat check that I could put back into the practice and get the website looking nice and all that sort of stuff. And I had to sort of decide, okay, if I go over a certain number of clients at one time, I'm going to have to hire somebody else. I'm going to have to sacrifice the level of service that I provide and that I pride myself on right now. And so do I take that leap. And yes, I'm growing my practice. I'm making more money. I'm doing all the things, but I'm doing a shittier job. Mm. And I didn't want to do that. Yeah. In my experience, most lawyers start out as good people, but I can see, especially over the long term, it's very, very easy to get cynical, to get jaded, to get very analytical and cold because after a while like say especially in in my field family law maybe i get a call from a gal and she tells me a story and i've heard this same story five thousand times and i know she's lying about a b and c and she's pulling my leg about d and i'm gonna find out this about e and whatever else i make all these assumptions and and decisions based on what i know and just sort of ignore her as a person. Well, again, that's where you get that cold, slimy, analytical thing from. Because they've seen it all. They've done it all. They've probably got burned a couple times by clients that didn't pay. Or clients that just, 
I had a client recently, busted my tail for this client for three years. Got this client everything they could possibly want. Full custody, loads of child support, all the stuff. She lost one motion in three years and it cost her 250 bucks. She fired me the next day. Whoa. And I flat out said, hey, I understand if you're upset, but given everything, I think I at least deserve a conversation, you know, didn't get it. Well, some lawyers that might happen to them and they go, well, let's see if I do that. And I work that hard for somebody next time. Because what did it do for me in the long run? Or I can go, man, I really lost a lot of respect for that person, but I'm not going to treat the next person like they're the same. It's not easy to do. That's an active thing. That's a day-to-day thing. It's not like I don't struggle with wanting to be an asshole sometimes. It, it takes effort sometimes to be a decent person, and I think that's okay. <laughs> so what are the things you do for yourself that is nice? Because it's similar to EMT workers or doctors, techs, nurses, where they're seeing people with injuries blood, all these kind of things. And yeah, there's a sort of the sensitization process, but you, you dealing with a family, you know, there might be abuse cases or your children are involved. What are some things to keep you? You talked about grounded uh, Metallica helping keep you grounded, but what are some other nice things you can do to maintain this level of humility and humanity? So you don't become cynical? Well, I would say the primary thing that I honestly do is I just, I just keep working because the easiest way to stay focused on that is to meet the kid is to meet with the family, you know, stay there. Don't turn somebody into a series of emails and stuff because that's how they, you start getting detached. So I would say that's number one, but in terms of how I sort of unwind from my day or take my mind off it, Fortunately, I guess for me in this regard, I have a lot of very solitary hobbies. I like to play guitar. I read probably five or six books a month. I currently studying Latin as like a side hobby. You know, I so I have a lot of stuff that I do myself, just by myself. So it's not it's not hard for me to be like, well, I don't have the time to go out and see my friends because I work so much. I'm kind of my best friend. And I know that sounds kind of pathetic, but at the same time, like, it's fine. You There's know? no pain because my life ain't easier. I don't want my best friend. Okay, sorry. <laughs> I don't care because I'm so much stronger. I brought him to the end. Okay. <laughs> sorry, sorry. But uh, yeah, so I mean, those types of just. The all the cliches that you hear, make time for yourself, have hobbies, do things. All of that stuff is pretty easy to, for me to fulfill because I work for myself. I decide when I work. The day the Metallica record came out, I literally did not work from one to five because I just was stoking up the record. And then that night, I worked until probably two in the morning. Like I. I shifted my entire schedule around to do something that I wanted to do. And I can only do that because I work for myself. Mm-hmm. So that's <laughs> nice. One of, one of the things I learned from my dad, my dad is your born and bred through and through 
red-blooded rural Republican. But one thing he, I learned from my dad is money, the most important thing that money buys you is time. If you have money, you don't have to spend money fixing your own washing machine. You don't have to spend your own money to figure out why the entire bathroom in the basement exploded. You can pay someone for that sort of thing. And so I always try to keep a focus on using what little money that I make to buy myself time to do stuff that I enjoy. My, my own solitary hobbies, spending time with my son, seeing my friends, doing all that stuff. The easiest way I think for me to stay grounded is to just always remind myself of what's important to me, providing good service to my clients, being a genuine person, you know, creating time for myself and just don't lose sight of that stuff. So many people, they get caught up in the buzz of I'm going to work, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. And they forget what they were really doing in the first place. Mm. And that's where they get off track. Mm. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned some of what you just mentioned, because I wanted to talk about this a little bit in the middle of your podcast community. I think I'm pretty way off to the left side of the political spectrum. I think I'm probably a minority in that. You know? <laughs> but um, in comparison to the rest of the community, I think, again, as mentioned, there's sort of a variety of thought. But the metal community, I think from what I've seen, and I don't declare myself a metalhead in any shape or form, but the type of metal that I've gravitated towards is more on the left. So bands like Napalm Death, and in general, or overall, I've seen metal to be a little bit more on the conservative side in terms of socially. There might be economically, there might be some variations or even, you know, who people support in terms of candidates. But I see that there's some sort of political conservatism and there's variations of that, like D. Snyder came out very much against the anti-trans laws and said, you know what, I think I'm going to put on some makeup to resist that. But, you know, I I think there's still some sort of, from my perspective, some sort of social conservative in the overall metal community. So I, I don't know. Again, I'm not a metalhead. I'm more of a punk kid. But what are your thoughts about that, where metal in general gravitates? And has that been your experience? I would say if you were going to paint with a real, real broad brush, that's probably true. I would say a lot of it comes from metal is, is rooted in masculinity, in power, in these sort of dynamics, because the people that create it don't have that. Like mm. they, people that write, a political metal song don't feel like they have a voice. People that write a song about going out and picking up a chick, they probably don't have a lot of success in that department. You know, they sort of compensate a lot of times for the things that they don't have. Power, money, you know, glory, fame, all that stuff. And so I think it tends to stay 
rooted in that conservatism because a loss of those values is perceived as a loss of the power that metal provides people who need it, you know? With that being said, there's a huge, huge amount of variation in that. I mean, you have a band like Cattle Decapitation. <laughs> they're a they're a grindcore death metal band whose primary theme is conservation. Mm-hmm. You know, global warming, preserving natural resources, being a vegetarian. There's huge extremes, but I think as time has gone on, you're seeing a shift away from that. I think if you were to talk about metal in the past, your statement rings more true. I think if you look at the metal that is coming up and is coming out and who is really pushing the fold, I think you're seeing a lot of change in that. The shirt I have on right now, I'm wearing a Gojira shirt, Mm -hmm. metal band from France. Gojira has very leftist leanings and they're in my opinion one of the real next up-and-comers gojira will someday be a metal band that has a legacy i can't say that it's going to be metallica level but they will have a legacy so we are seeing the shift i think but we're living it in real time and unfortunately real time is not very fast (laughs) true True, true, true. Very true. And since we're on the middle of your podcast connection, let's discuss Metallica for a bit. (laughs) Sure. Absolutely. I'd love to. I know you do. So for me, again, not being a metalhead, yes, there are metal bands I listen to, but Metallica has always had that punk connection to me. I looked at Kill 'Em All as being a punk album, and that's probably why I really got into it. And looking at their albums in between now and the first album, there's just so many elements of that. And I know the band disagrees with me on that. And I know most people do. But it's a hill that I will gladly die on because to me, Metallica is a punk band. I don't care what anybody says. It's too many elements. And even Lars talked about, I think this was on Howard Stern or something. I don't know. But he said that, they owe a lot of where they are now to punk. So I think there's something to that. And just my punk sensibilities just go off when I listen to them. And yeah, there's new wave of British heavy metal elements, obviously, because that has been their inspiration. But for you as a metalhead, what does Metallica represent for you? Why do you love Metallica? So it's interesting that that you bring up the punk connection right away, because you certainly hear those elements. Right, especially in Kill 'em All. And obviously, they've covered the Ramones, they've covered the Misfits, they've played like discharge songs and, and all this sort of stuff. But even more than musically, I think the punkiest thing about Metallica is their just their ethos, their creative approach, their creative drive, that whole DIY flavor that has never left the band. That is, for lack of a better term, punk as fuck. And I think uh, that's a huge part of why Metallica was able to sort of rise above their peers and become the cream of the crop. Mm. Because 
yeah, Slayer's awesome, right? <laughs> there is no band on the face of the earth that will pummel you for 35 minutes like Slayer. But that's all they are. And Megadeth is pretty good, but it's really just Dave Mustaine. Megadeth is not a band. One man. And Anthrax is just kind of like the goofy little brothers. Everybody loves them. Everybody thinks they're awesome, but they're always going to be the little brother. Metallica had an ethos and a drive that those bands did not have. That's what pushed them to, we're not going to do videos until one came out. And they had a video that blew people's doors off. My mom and her boyfriend and other friends spent the whole night sitting in front of the television waiting for that video to premiere. And they were terrified. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but amazed. You know, Metallica didn't do that until they could do it exactly how they wanted to do. They didn't go sort of commercial, quote unquote, until the Black Album, because they did it exactly how they wanted to do. Everything that they've done, they've done on their own time. And that is because of the punk in them. I would definitely agree with that. Even the lawsuit against Elektra and them getting their masters back and how they came to having their own label. Now, Metallica is essentially an entity unto itself. That's very rare. Maybe Prince, maybe, maybe Jack White, but I think Metallica really is a planet unto itself until point <laughs> and they it, did it, it on really, their terms yeah it it really has become the the real life version of death clock in, in that way like it it, <laughs> it 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 is it's it's a monolith and i'm really interested to see what happens in the future because obviously metallica is not going to be making records forever and they're mm-hmm. not going to be touring forever and all of this sort of stuff but they have an infrastructure in place now where they can be sort of a music factory of their own. They can sign a band to a label. They can press the record. They can distribute it. They can promote it. They can make the merch. They can store the merch in the warehouse. It's all there. And so I really think Metallica is poised to be kind of a city on a hill for the future of metal. And just music in general, you know, because, you know, Lars is going to go out and find some goofy thing that doesn't fit the mold at all. And he's going to pump it as hard as he can possibly pump it. And I'm here for that energy. The other thing you talked about in terms of the other big four bands, the thing for me with Metallica at this point, especially after being an amputee, is my connection to them is more spiritual and philosophical. So being a punk kid on that element, but really looking at them outside of the music, and that's a thing that's also rare with music. And even with 72 Seasons, which I want to talk with you about, them exploring the sides that you don't really hear from older metal folks, because people still talk about either conspiracy theories or goblins or whatever or historical events when it comes to war like those are still pretty topical 
metal subjects, but Metallica decided to say, you know, there was a pandemic, it still still is, but there were a lot of things like therapy that happened, internal conversations, external conversations with the band, all of these other elements that were explored in this album, which you still don't hear, which is interesting because people seem to be more open about where they are on things emotionally, but at least I haven't heard that explored in music too much. So I love that Metallica did that. What are your thoughts about that and 72 seasons as a whole? I like that you bring that up. I've never really thought about that before in the sense of what I've always really been drawn to as far as the writing was James. James is a very sort of bold way of writing. I never really gave a lot of thought to Dave Mustaine doesn't ever really write a song about how he feels on a Thursday, but James does. Anthrax has never done that. Slayer most certainly has never done that. And most metal bands don't. I, I think you're, you're really onto something there because even as I'm thinking about other metal bands, a lot of the ones that are the most successful in the long run don't shy away from being naked on a record. Lamb of God, for example, my second favorite band of all time. One of the things I love about that band is they very much have the Metallica ethos of they do it how they want, they do it when they want, it's fan-centered, and they're not shy. I don't know how familiar you are with them, but for example, around 2005, I want to say, they put out a DVD, and it was one of those sort of, we're on the road, and here's a show, we made a record in DVDs. Well, when they were in Scotland, the guitar player and the front man got into a fist fight in Glasgow, and the guitar player knocked him out cold in the middle of the street. Whoa. And they left that in the video. Wow. You know, they talk about how they're all pissed off with the front man's alcoholism. He wrote an entire record about his struggle with alcoholism. Um, I don't know if you know this, but at one time, Randy Bly, that's the front man's name, was detained in the Czech Republic on charges of manslaughter. Whoa. There was a fan that had died at one of the shows years prior. Yes. And, and they had said that he had pushed the individual off the stage. Yes, I did hear a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, he sat in a prison in the Czech Republic for months. And in those months, he meditated, he read, he learned. Most importantly, he wrote. And when he got out, he wrote an entire record about that experience. He wrote a book about that experience, which is phenomenal, by the way. I would recommend it to anybody. It's called Dark Days by D. Randall Bly. It is a very intense read. Um, I can read, you know, your average large size book in a couple of days. And there would be, I would read, you know, 30 some pages of this book and I'd have to set it down and just like digest Wow. everything. Because it was just so dense. There was just so much there. And so how many, how many, Fans would do something like that. I can only think of one other one, and that's Metallica. Wow. Lamb of God, I know they did some ministry covers. That's what I mostly know of Lamb of God. It's that's, a, it's, that's a really great cover, the G Jesus Built My Hot Rod. That yeah. Was a, 
fabulous <laughs> cover. I loved it. I like ministry a lot. So I was like, what's this? <laughs> I never went through uh, their whole discography, but I really enjoyed Houses of the Mole. Mm-hmm. I really like that record. That is a band. I know people talk about Metallica, quote unquote, changing, but you want to talk about a band that was Depeche Mode to industrial metal to speed metal to straight up metal ministries of band if you want to explore that catalog it's, it's all over the place <laughs> so jamila tell when when was your accident about it was a couple years ago so the day that it happened was february was it february 12 2021 so how has your fandom of Metallica or just music in general even how has that changed from pre-2021 to now like like for Mm -hmm. example I know obviously you are the metal up your podcast Saint Anger Prophet that is your title and so obviously you love that record but was was your connection to that record the same before your accident as after for example absolutely not Absolutely not. It wasn't until the accident where my love for St. Anger and even Lulu grew. And like everyone else, I was like, oh, Metallica's cool. I would listen to Battery after work, you know? (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I would just take in their music, probably like how, how a lot of people do. Metallica's cool. But examining my own life, examining the relationship with people in my family, examining the relationship with myself, I began to take in the music and the lyrics a lot differently. And I began to connect with it in ways that I hadn't before, especially songs like Mama Said, an album like Saint Anger. This is why I really, I look at 72 Seasons as being their best album. I connect with every single song on there. And it really did bring back a lot for me growing up in those 18 years it brought up a lot for me where I did cry a number of times, teared up, just really going, oh, wait, you know, <laughs> I, I, before the accident, there were a lot of things I did leave behind and was okay with that came up for me after I listened to that album and after being an amputee. And so now I feel like I'm starting these 72 seasons all over again. So it's really, really hard for me. And Metallica, really helped to put a lot of that in perspective for me that I didn't have to think about not being an amputee. So yeah, it was very different significance for me listening to their music prior to the accident and now for sure. Yeah. I do want to talk about 72 seasons next, but I did want to ask you one last question because I had been thinking about this and I was really curious. I'm curious of how or what your experience was like, sort of like realizing and and confronting your limitations. So I'll explain what I'm getting at like this. So there are certain things about me being a disabled individual or having a disability that didn't really click with me until I was like 30 years old. For example, if I'm walking outside and it's icy and stuff, I'll get to like an icy patch of the sidewalk. I have to sort of like stop kind of strategize where I'm going to step and how I'm going to shift my weight and all this sort of stuff. Or if I'm going to like step down and up from a curb, there's like a half a second pause where I have to actually physically think about like, okay, 
shift your weight like this, do this. Until I was like 30 years old, I didn't really realize, oh, people don't do that. They don't think about, I'm going to step up the curb now. They just do that. Yep. And that was a, that was a very, it was a very enlightening experience for me. And so as someone that didn't necessarily just adapt in real time and grow their entire life around their limitations, what was that experience like for you? Oh, it's an ongoing and I'm sure lifelong experience. So something that people take for granted, like going to the bathroom is very different for me. Uh, the last place I lived at, I lived with two dudes and I had to leave the door open because my wheelchair wouldn't accommodate <laughs> having a closed door, you know, and so they had to pass by and go, ooh, ooh, okay. So things like that or going in public in terms of the bathroom, sometimes I have to make the decision to bring my legs. So it'll be easier so I can shut the door. Things like being in the kitchen, making food, um, having to turn in a specific way so I can reach the counter, things like steps. The other thing for me is my leg that's amputated doesn't bend all the way. So I have to go up or down the stairs with the correct leg because if I don't, I'm going to fall. Things like that mm -hmm. I have to think about every single day. <laughs> so you are absolutely right where things people don't have to think about. I have to think about every moment of the day. You know, if you're with people and they may leave something around, I'm like, oh, I can't get my wheelchair around that. Can you move that, please? <laughs> something as simple as that, leaving a door open or closed, things that people take for granted every single day. And I'm sure I did as well, you know, prior to the accident. I sort of feel like I consistently have an internal battle between not wanting to be a burden, right? Like I don't like mm -hmm. to ask for help. Yes. For, and I don't want someone to change what they do because I'm around. The, like literally the only thing I will with no shame ask somebody to do is carry a hot liquid. Me and hot liquids do not go together because mm -hmm. I like I limp. So there's a lot of sloshing action going on. Me and a bowl of soup, bad idea. Yeah. But you know, so I have that where I'm like, I just want to be as normal as everyone else and not a burden to anyone around me. And then also like not taking for granted that it's not that bad to ask for help. And it could be so much worse because like, for example, my twin brother cannot walk, cannot really use his hands, not related to his, not like because he has cerebral palsy, but as a sort of indirect consequence. Two years ago, he went completely blind. Mm. That, that's all Alex had. And now he doesn't even get that. And, you know, I always say that everybody, everybody should meet my brother Alex. Because nobody got a shittier end of the stick. When Alex was born, the doctors told my parents not to name him because he would not survive. Wow. And he did. And he has supposed to have died like three times since then and he never has and he has all these issues and all these limitations and he is the happiest human being on the face of the earth i would put anybody up against. it's that struggle between 
I'm independent. I don't need help. That pride, right? That the struggle between having that pride and then realizing why do I have this pride? There, there are people so much worse off than me, and I'm sitting here worrying about my own pride. The thing that puts it into perspective for me is understanding that every single person on this earth has something going on to varying degrees. We may not see it. So I tried to not look at it as, well, someone's worse off than me because someone who may not appear worse off may actually be having that spectrum of who is or who isn't. Everyone is experiencing something whether or not we can see it. And it may not happen on that day, but it will happen at some point. It's like the saying, I'm not particularly fond of using this as a go-to, but I think it is true that at some point, everyone will in their life have some sort of mobility issue or disability. Like there were a couple of times in my life where I went deaf in my right ear mm-hmm. and it just came back, but just being deaf is a particular struggle that not everyone is going to understand. And so my hearing came back. So I'm not going to go, I'm deaf because that's not what I'm experiencing right now, but I have. And to, you know, some someone may not have known that unless I told them. So that person you see walking on the street could actually be deaf in one ear and you don't know. So mm-hmm. I just tried to put it in perspective that everyone is experiencing something on any given day and they may not talk about it. We may not know about it. And I think the strength of your brother, I think there's also that fine line where people, I'm not saying you're saying this, obviously, but there are those people, uh, I don't know if they say this to you, but I've had people say to me, you're so brave. It's like, you don't know me. How do you know I'm brave? <laughs> like, to, I, I, and, and yeah. So somebody like your brother, he's so brave that he's, it's it's a bit of a pity. It, it's like a, yeah. the, the guy, Ian Jury. So they had the, was it Disability Week in the UK or something back in the 70s. So he had the song, Bastikus Autisticus, to show how pissed off he was about that because he's like, I'm not someone to pity. Like right. you're having this program because you want to pity us and and look at how brave we are, but we demand humanity. <laughs> and for you to determine what level our humanity is. And so I'm sure there are people who do that to your brother. And I'm sure that's very upsetting to him as, as much as it would be upsetting to you. So you seeing the struggle your brother's in and his survival story, I think that's a little different. But just people going so far as I don't know if I could live that way to somebody like me. I think that I just couldn't live if I was an amputee. It's like, how do you know? You know, it's like, you don't know that and you're not in this body. So don't speak for me. Don't speak for your brother, Alex. Do not speak for you. Mm -hmm. And so I just try to put that in perspective to understand that people are experiencing something to whatever degree. That's just what makes sense to me. Yeah. I look at it from a very practical perspective of the variation on the you're so brave thing that I've always gotten was, wow, I can't believe you have never let that hold you back. You went to college and you became a lawyer and you had a kid in law school and you did all this stuff. That's amazing. And I just look at him and I go, what else was I supposed to do? Mm -hmm. (laughs) was I not supposed to go to college was I 
not supposed to go to law school? Was I just supposed to go, sorry, hon, that you're pregnant, but I'm disabled. So guess you got to figure it out. I'm, I'm held back. I mean, that line of thinking just doesn't make sense. Kind of like you were saying, I don't know if I could live without this or that. Well, when the time comes, you don't really have a choice. If you wake up one day and all of a sudden you're blind, then you are. Mm -hmm. And you're either going to live that or you can give up and quit. (laughs) Well, most people, regardless of what things look like in the world, most people are not quitters. Mm -hmm. And so I think if a, a lot of those people really sat back and thought, well, if I was in his position, would I give up? If they thought about that before they asked me that question, or if they looked at you and said, well, if I was in her position, would I be brave or would I just be living my life like everyone else? If they thought about that before they asked you, I have a feeling they wouldn't ask. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I wanted to ask about the benefits of being a metalhead for you, because you go by metal lawyer. So that guides what you do as a lawyer. So as you said, being a lawyer is something you do, but it is not you. But how do these values of being a metalhead, how do you connect with that? What are the benefits of that for you? I would say that my favorite thing about it is it's a way for me to tell people I'm just a regular guy. I didn't go to law school and sell my soul. I still love what I love. I'm not afraid to be who I am. I listen to metal and I keep my hair long and I have my nose ring in when I'm in court. Like it's for me, it's my way of signaling to everybody else. I'm just a guy looking to help you out, man. (laughs) Were there any laws prior to you being a lawyer about hair length or tattoos or jewelry or anything like that? Um. There definitely wasn't um, like rules per se, but it's it, it was sort of the practical reality of it. I feel like if you'd uh, went into a courtroom in 1998 with your hair down to the middle of your back and a nose ring, you were at a pretty significant disadvantage. Whereas now people are sort of less predisposed to make assumptions on that. Part of it too is you still got to just make an effort. I mean, I... Yeah, I, I look like a metalhead, but I keep my hair back. I wear a nice suit. I'm still respectful and presenting myself well. And honestly, one of the things I love about that, too, is kind of the reverse of it. I get to send this signal to everybody in the world that metalheads are not burnouts, and they're not losers, and they're not drunks, and they're not all this stuff. I get to send the signal that Not only are metalheads kick ass, they go out and they kick ass. (laughs) And that and I love I love that. And your experience in terms of going to shows, has that been positive? Have there been uh, some struggles with that? Um, honestly, especially especially at shows is you know, and I'm sure you get crowds that are full of assholes and stuff like that. Probably more likely at a five finger death punch concert. But oh wait, wait, that's so so we're gonna see that on the M72 tour then, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I I I try not to talk down on bands and what they do, but 
that band has no redeeming quality for me. I'm sorry. But, um, you know, when I've been at metal shows, even when I've been down on the floor, and obviously I don't go into the pit, but there have been times where the pit comes to you. I always tried to stay on the edge and things like that, but inevitably, you know, maybe you get knocked by a guy or whatever. And anytime I have ever been at a metal show, you know, and something like that has happened, if I get knocked by a guy and I fall back, somebody catches me every time. Hey, man, are you all right? I got your back. Don't worry about it. Whatever. People, if I'm if I'm down in the front on the rail for a while, somebody might say, hey, man, are you good? You know, blah, blah, blah. Like, they, they look out for me. Mm. And no questions asked, nothing required. A metal show, you can really see the humanity in people. Yes, obviously in an aggressive way or in a crazy way, getting drunk, doing all this stuff, but also in a really beautiful way. The Metallica community in particular, this is a great example of that. Everyone says it. Every podcast, every fan, all of it. When James says this is a family, that is a 100% legitimately what it feels like. And I do feel like, generally speaking, that applies to metal as a whole. And I feel like that's very special. You go to a Taylor Swift concert, nobody else gives a shit about you. They care about Taylor Swift. If you go to a rap concert, no one gives a shit about you. At a metal show, people give a shit about you because you're a member of the tribe. You are one of us. So that that's interesting you say that because my question to you was going to be about that because in my experience at metal shows, it hasn't always been welcoming and there are plenty of folks who can tell those stories. So in terms of the lack of diversity in medical community, you are seeing it increasingly, but there's still something to be said for that. And then there's been folks who have been the recipient of a negative experience and outright attacks, myself included. So what are some things you would say to folks coming into the scene and have those concerns? And what are some things folks can do to assure the scene is welcoming to all folks? Because you are saying it's a family, but not everyone has experienced that. That's a really tough question for me to to answer. And yeah. I I like that you brought it up because it was something that I thought about too the other day when I was just thinking about our conversation. I'm curious of your perspective on that. For example, why do you think that black musicians tend not to be involved in rock or metal like do you think it's because of something systemic something about the vibe or do you think there's some kind of like cultural difference because i've never i've never truly grasped it because there are some like for example living color they sent their big song was cult of personality yep. <laughs> yeah pick ass band and you know you listen to that first record vivid and i'm like why like why didn't they get bigger why why weren't they bigger? Why isn't there more living colors? Yeah. Because yeah. these guys can fucking play. <laughs> they're 
songs are totally unique. I mean, they like they were writing songs about like gentrification and and like all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. That's actually so, my favorite Living Color song. <laughs> Letter to a so, landlord. Yeah. Yeah. So why why do you think that is? I think it's part uh what you said earlier. I think it is systemic. I have straight up been questioned in the street. I've been with friends. It's like, what are you doing with those people? Straight up, I see to this day, when I was coming up in the 90s, to this day, people still say that metal is white people's music. And whenever there is someone who is not white performing, it's like, what are you doing in this scene? People have been the recipient of physical violence. Um, so it's still seen by many and at this point, it's it might be anonymous folks on the internet, but it's still a thing. And people still look at it as primarily a white and male thing. And there have been plenty of bands, like the band Death, not the not the Chuck Schoenberg, but the the what a quote unquote proto-punk band Death. Um, okay. there's Living Color, you mentioned there's Author Lee of Love, there's Jimi Hendrix. Uh, so there's so many people who have been involved in the scene that you can name, we could do a whole episode on it, but it's still considered to be a white and male form of music. So when you go to these shows, people will straight up say to you in your face, what are you doing here? People will grab on you. People will beat you up. People, it's just not kind to many of us. And so when people, uh, even when uh, what's the guy's name in Machine Head? Oh, I, why am I not remembering his name? Rob, Rob, Rob uh, Flynn. Rob Flynn. Yeah. So when he was talking about Phil Anselmo and his white supremacist actions, he got death threats. So even addressing racism in metal will get you death threats. It's still seen as something to protect whiteness and maleness in many ways. And so when you were talking earlier about people not feeling they have some semblance of power. So it's reflected in music. I think that's part of that as well, where people are resisting the changing social landmarks and, you know, Mm -hmm. people being like, well, now we have a platform to address these systemic issues. The country guy who's using racial epithets, he has two albums on the charts right now. And from what I did in my research, people bought the his album specifically as a response to that, as a response to re- the resistance of yeah, racism. Morgan Morgan Wallen is actually set to break Metallica's number one streak for the first time in 32 years. Right. He's projected to have the number one album in the country. You know, like I said, it's tough for me to say how to address it because I've never understood it, especially going back to metal and rock music for lack of a better term Mm -hmm. is black music it comes from chuck berry it comes from Jimi hendrix it comes from the 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 blues of the 30s and all of that stuff and so for people to just dismiss all of that history has just never made any sense to me and so i think as a white metal fan is i guess my responsibility is to i can't necessarily do anything about the dicks in the crowd (laughs) but i can be one of the guys that's 
flying that flag and showing that respect. And I think it's my responsibility if I see somebody acting the way you're describing, it's my responsibility to go, hey, what the fuck are you doing? Mm-hmm. Have you, you know, have you thought about your thought process in this for 10 seconds? Because you look like an idiot right now. You know, <laughs> it's kind of our responsibility as the majority of the fan base to police our own, mm-hmm. I guess. I, I suppose I feel like that's really the best way to go about it. And then just naturally over time, I just hope that there are more living colors. And, and I always forget his name, the Witherspoon, the guy from Seven Dust. Because all of those things that I talked about at the beginning of this conversation about metal being a boon for people that feel like they don't have power. Mm-hmm. Those musicians show that rock and metal can be a vehicle for blacks or other minorities that also don't have power. And, and to use it for their voice, like Living Color does, <laughs> for example. Because, and I keep using them as an example because they're just so upfront, direct, no bones about it. And I love that. That band did not compromise, again, for a lack of better term, one shred of their blackness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's awesome. I hope that over time, as the fan base works to create a space for other people, that those other people also recognize, hey, this is a really cool vehicle for getting our voice out. We have to push to be the community that we want it to be. Absolutely. You know, it's 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 one of the things I always tell like clients, because you get clients and they get frustrated with. Well, why is this this way? Why is this rule like that? Why, you know, all this sort of stuff. Why do we have to do this? Why can't you just cut the corner? And I tell them because the system only works if people believe in it. And as soon as you start walking away from the the lines, people don't believe in it anymore. So mm-hmm. if you want metal to be a welcoming, open place for anybody and everybody then you as a metal fan have a responsibility to act that out. And to your point, there's Black Sabbath considered to be the parents of metal for parents of metal. They were initially a blues band. So where do you think metal came from? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so Absolutely. Metal came from the blues. If, if you consider Black Sabbath to be the people who quote unquote created metal, you have to acknowledge where it came from. And yes, there are so many variations of what metal has come to be, but you have to, as you said, acknowledge the roots. And I think the future of metal, I don't agree that rock is dead. I mean, we're seeing it very much in action where festivals are happening, shows are selling out, rock is far from dead. It's just the way people consume music has changed. So it's not that anything's dead. It's just people have diversified their way of listening to music. But even when you're seeing the way people have now started to listen to Metallica, so you see all these videos and these reactions where rap fan listens to Metallica, the fan base of Metallica is also diversifying. So if the Metallica family is truly a family, then metalheads need to 
as you're saying, really open that space up for people and not go, well, rap is terrible. You like rap, then you're not a real, you know, stop gatekeeping because uh, even the folks that you worship in this band, Cliff Burton, <laughs> Cliff Burton was a classical fan. He liked REM. He wasn't a metalhead. There was an interview he did where he was asked about metal fan, metal bands, and he was like, I don't even know who that is. <laughs> so, right. So he wasn't clearly listening to New Wave of British heavy metal like the rest of his band brothers. And then you have Jason. He was listening to more Chiba. He was listening to hip hop. Uh, Lars was listening to NWA. To think that your favorite metal band is simply just listening to metal, you are incorrect. I mean, James listens to country music all the time. Things that are declared uncool in the larger scheme of things, your favorite bands are listening to those things. So understand that music is a world into itself, which Stevie Wonder said. It's a whole world out there and to close yourself off from it. The greatest metal music takes from a range of experiences a range of influences and inspirations so if people are going to be advocates and encouraging people to listen to metal like jason newsett's shirt says <laughs> we have to understand mm -hmm. that not even your favorite musician is listening to metal my last question to you on that note what would be a starter kit for those just getting into metal so i would say I, I guess I really enjoyed my my progression as a fandom. I'll go through that. I really like using 80s metal and like hair metal as a base, like to start people, because it's all sugar, right? It's all the addictive qualities. It's loud and the guitar solos are amazing and there's explosions and you know, it's all the stories about being a rock star and all that kind of stuff. So you get them, you get them hooked on all that, and you you show them the great guitar players, the epic moments, and then you nudge the window a little bit. Then you then you go a little bit heavier into like Metallica and Anthrax and stuff like that. And then you nudge them, you just nudge them a little bit further, just all the way along. Because the thing about metal, once you get hooked on it. You're always looking for the heavier thing that, you know, like when like Clint talks about Cannibal Corpse on Metal Up Your Podcast, how do people become fans of Cannibal Corpse? I'll tell you why, because they started at Pantera or Sepultura or whatever it was, and they just kept, I, it can get heavier, right? It can get heavier, right? It can get heavier. And they're all the way down the line of Cannibal Corpse. And so any metal fan, that's their journey. They go down the line until they get to a point where this is too heavy. I don't like this anymore. Yeah. And that's where they stop. I mean, and as a fan, the best way to show somebody something you love is to show them what you love about it. That's how you're going to be able to sell it best. Like this conversation, we're just going off on tangents. We're talking about this. We're talking about that. <laughs> it's because we're enjoying it. So if you're sharing something that you enjoy with somebody, give them that. If your favorite metal song of all time is disposable heroes show them that song show them what you love the most mm. because your enthusiasm will be infectious i love that you you said that song specifically because that is my favorite song on master of puppets <laughs> it i i'd have to i'd have to say it's probably mine too i have that i have those little debates in my head where i go ah maybe i like this one more 
but disposable heroes is one that I always come back to. So I think I have to agree. <laughs> My second is Leper Messiah, but a lot of people are like, oh, no. <laughs> definitely mine too. I love that song. That it's, I love the subject matter and the topic. Uh, and then those riffs are so heavy and the phrasing is so weird. Like to me, Leper Messiah is a very, very, very unique song on that album and in their catalog. There's a lot of flavors in that song that don't come out anywhere else. Yes, thank you. Thank you for defending that song because I I don't necessarily see hate for it, but people are like, eh, I don't know. Eh. Yeah, they're very iffy on it. Yeah, I love it. Some B-side D-cut. D-cuts? D-cut. What did I say? D-cut. B-side Deep cut. <laughs> and I and I will yeah. I will go ahead and I'll just I'll just say for the people right now, Saint Anger is a good rep. Thank you. Thank and you. And if do I listen to it all the time? No. It is a it is a very intense, very heavy record. And to, and I'll pop a song on here there. One of the ones I love, like obviously I love Frantic. I love My World. I love Sweet Amber. But I won't actually sit down with the whole record unless I'm in like there's a headspace I got to be in, yeah. right? But I'll tell you right now, I li listened to that album ten times more than I have listened to Death Magnetic. I have not sat down and listened to Death Magnetic front to back since probably 2015. Wow. Well, it's not as good. I love Death, Death Magnetic. That's well, now I guess number four for me because 72 is number one. But I probably listen to St. Anger more than anyone I know. So, you know, it's cool. <laughs> I, I, I will tell you, you rubbed off on me a couple weeks ago. And there was like a three-day period where I, I spun it probably five or six times. And even Purify, which I've, I know Purify gets a lot of dirt. but I And I've never totally liked it. But even then, I, was, I listened to it a couple times through and I went, you know, this is a pretty fucking cool song. You already know how I feel about Purify, so I'm not even... Gonna, yeah, I could spend, absolutely. I made a six-hour movie about St. Anger, so, you know, I'm not <laughs> I love that album so as I As I said, there is, there is no dispute that you are the prophet. Do you think that they're going to acknowledge St. Anger at the Download Festival? Because they're playing on June 10th, which is the date of the proposed release of St. Anger, but it got officially released five days earlier. I really hope they acknowledge it. I will cry I, of happiness. I think Frantic always has a decent shot in the set list nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> so I wouldn't expect much more than that. Oh no, 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 please don't, don't May, say like that. maybe, maybe we'd get Saint Anger. Okay. But I don't I don't think we'd get one of the other any of the other tracks. It's gonna be one of those two. Lars, like if they went out there and busted out my world, oh I'd be absolutely over the moon. But, but Lars, if you're listening, please play Purify. <laughs> right? Yeah. Give us Purify. I I'd be really interested to see that. Lars is not listening, but just in, in the case he is. Play Purify, please. <laughs> Nick, thank you so much. I appreciate you being on this episode so much and getting your perspective as the metal lawyer. Absolutely. It was an absolute blast. I loved it. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Do you have any last words before we leave? I don't think so. I think I've talked plenty. I hope everybody has a great day, week, month, year, whatever. <laughs> thank you, Nick. I'll talk to you Absolutely. soon. Yes. Bye-bye.